You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I'm producer Evan Miller. I'm joined by, with our Apex director and professor of history, Ryan Paul, and our panelists. Ryan, why don't you introduce them? Thank you, Evan. We're excited to, uh, to have a, a wonderful conversation today about AI, and we have some amazing faculty members from SUU. Uh, first, we have uh, Professor of English, Dr. Julie McCown, and uh, Professor of English, Dr. Todd Peterson, and uh, the Professor of Physics, right? Yeah, Professor of Physics, right? Dr. Brandon Wiggins. So this reminds me of, a, of a, the beginning of a joke, right? Two English professors, a physicist and historian walk into a, a radio station. It's going to be great. <laughs> so we're, we're having a conversation. We, we're carrying on a conversation that we had had um, earlier today about artificial intelligence. So I, what I'd like to start with is if each of you could uh, begin with this idea of what you, you think about artificial intelligence in general, and then we'll go on to a broader topic. Or we'll go on to a, a different conversation. So, Julie, why don't you start? Okay, great. So, what I think about artificial intelligence in general, um, well, as I said at the Apex event earlier today, um, I'm generally quite defiantly optimistic about AI. Um, I think it offers a lot of promise um, and a lot of creative opportunities. Um, I tend to resist the more sort of cynicism and doomerism around AI. Um, I try to see the potential in it because it would be too easy for me to become cynical and jaded about it. And I, so I, I tend to take a very kind of energized, hopeful t- attitude towards it. Okay. Uh, Todd, why don't you go? Hi, I'm Todd Peterson. Uh, in addition to teaching in the English department, I teach in the film department. So it's two departments that really have their eye on AI. Um, and my thoughts about are that I'm not so sanguine about it. Uh, I think I've seen it already doing some damage. And I think that uh, we'll probably see that pattern move forward because every time people say it creates efficiencies, I say, then somebody's out of work. Um, and a lot of times people think that that's an abstraction, but uh, technical writers are already losing jobs. They're losing clients. Um, because they w- people would rather use a cheaper free computer service than use a human being. So that's a little bit about my concern, or at least my skepticism, keeping my eyes open as we look at it. Okay. Brandon? Um, honestly, I think it's quite a complex issue. Um, I think it's very exciting. I also think there's a lot of danger here, and we need to kind of tread carefully. And I think as a society, we need to be pretty deliberate about what we want the role of AI to be and what we want it to not do, and then kind of put the guardrails around it in that way. So um, a lot of opportunity, a lot of chances to, um, I guess, explore new waters. But with that comes a complexity I think we need to acknowledge and keep an eye on. So I I should mention, we've just been joined by uh, um, Parker Grimes, who's the the Director of Administrative Systems here at SUU. Parker, first of all, could you tell us exactly what that is and, and what you do, and then your general thoughts beginning on, on AI? Yeah, so my title, Director of Administrative Systems, what that means is that I manage a team of programmers here at SUU, and uh, my team is responsible for developing software and internal tools to streamline and automate the business processes of the university. So I come from a programming background, right? And everything that we do is automation and streamlining. And I have had experiences in the past where I've automated a process and somebody has been scared that I just automated them out of a job. It was a legitimate fear that they had, right? Um, But fast forward several years after that experience from that particular person, they still had a job. It just freed them up to do other things. And that's what I see AI doing. I see AI freeing up uh, people to do other creative uh, work. So there might be job loss, yes, but I think there will be other opportunities uh, created 
from AI. So we're, we, we talk about AI in, in this kind of idea of academically, we talk about chat GPT, you know, people writing their essays or their papers or whatever. But, but I guess my question is, let's define what that is. I mean, we're talking about, AI. are we talking about like Skynet, you know, that's going to take over the world? Are we talking about the matrix that the machines are going to plug us in and give us a fantasy life? Or are we talking about Star Trek where, you know, technology will make the world a more harmonious place, I guess, unless we're Romulans. But, <laughs> but what, what is the, what is the overall, I mean, it seems like a pretty big umbrella here. Yeah, I think it is a, a very big umbrella. Um, I don't think kind of the sort of Skynet, you know, the negative Skynet scenario or like the positive Star Trek scenario, that's general artificial intelligence that we haven't yet reached. We may never reach that point. So we're not quite at that kind of maybe scary dystopian science fiction-y narrative. Um, We're still at the point of, you know, maybe more limited AI with LLMs. Anybody else want to? Want to chime in? I think that we're going to probably see both. We're going to see the the risk and of some kind of negative applications of AI. Um, I joke right now. I read a news article that said the IRS is going to start using AI. Um, I, our university. Uh, auditors are using some AI, but they want to look for tax cheats. And so I've said, we don't have to worry about AI being around here for very long. As soon as the rich find out that they have to pay taxes because of AI, they'll make it illegal. And so that's kind of my humorous response to it. But I do think that there's a sense that AI may be used for surveillance. I mean, I teach film, I teach literature. I mean, um, Lucius Fox got really nervous when Batman wanted to have that whole thing that could kind of look at and analyze crime. And uh, minority Report is this way of kind of trying to be predictive enough that we might be able to stop crime before it happens. And I think that those are all, they're imagined scenarios, but I think they're legitimate ones. Like Brandon was saying, maybe this is some of the stuff we could be looking at in order to tread carefully. I do think that there's going to be some repetitive tasks, some streamlining like Parker is talking about, that's going to make some of the kind of like, I'll use a video game term, like the grinding work that we have to do within the digital economy that's pretty difficult and it's kind of like human demeaning data entry kind of stuff or some of the kind of base level analysis, we might be able to rise up from that. So my take is that it's probably going to be a little bit of both. So I'm thinking about this idea of of a calculator, right? And maybe Brandon or Parker can chime in on this. So we've we've accepted the idea of calculators as being these math machines, right? That that there are some classes at the university where you're actually you take the calculator in to to do the the test. So I mean, how different is that from me using it to write an analysis of of uh, the short stories of H.P. Lovecraft? The calculator doesn't lie. That's one thing that AI does, right? It fabricates answers when they're incorrect. If every now and then a calculator just gave you some random answer, we might think less of them. But I think that's one difference. It's a pretty consistent, reliable tool. If the inputs are correct, then the outputs will be correct. But with AI, a lot of times it's bias or corrupt information in and then corrupt information out. They're they're both tools, right? A calculator is a tool, an LLM is a tool, and they both depend on the operator using them appropriately, ethically, responsibly. Um, The same thing applies with generative AI. You can use it unethically, you can use it irresponsibly, you can use it to generate bullcrap. You can, but if you, you can also use it in correct ways to do to give you really great results um it's at the end of the day it's just a tool so so the idea is is that we we you use words like uh appropriately ethically responsibly and i'm not confident that if we asked many people to define those categories as human nature they would not be those but that's the beauty of humanity, right? There's there's good and bad in society, and I I believe personally in 
the ever-rising moral arc of society, that we continue to get better and better as humanity, better as society. Yes, there's always bad actors out there, and there will definitely be people who use the tool ignorantly and do things bad unintentionally, and there will be people who use the tool intentionally to do bad things. But I think that... um, well, I want to believe that humanity's better than that, right? That in in general, we will use it for good and that it will produce uh, a better outcome for humanity overall. If I can build on that, um, you know, I think part of that idea of trying to, you know, wanting people to use AI responsibly or ethically, I think education is a key part of that, Um, you know, for a lot of people, they don't have both. The, both they don't have a concept of exactly how LLMs work, but then they also, you know, we need to train and teach people how to use AI ethically and responsibly. Just kind of like we train people how to operate motor vehicles. We have them, you know, go through licensures and they have to take tests. You know, we don't just let people go operate motor vehicles without any guidelines or training. I think we should see a greater investment in critical AI literacy and education so that we can more easily have this sort of positive, good actors using AI in ways that do enrich humanity. One of the concerns, though, is that the tool itself spits out bad information irrespective of whether or not you've used it responsibly. So that's the place we're in at the present moment. Um, The people working in the area call it model collapse and that after a certain number of training sessions, it actually gets worse in the ability for it to actually perform mathematical functions and in the large language model itself getting inaccurate. And so while we're in a space where I can come in with the best of possible intentions and still get the result of incorrect information, it's irrespective of whether or not people are like creating deep fakes with it or other kinds of things which can be used to deceive the tool itself doesn't seem to care or be programmed about whether or not it creates truth, only that it creates the most statistically accurate uh, language within the data set. And so that's where I think that there's the danger. You can be the best possible person, and unless you're critical of the answers that you get from it, you could be turning loose into the world, Pandora's box style, some pretty bad or maybe even devastatingly bad information. So in, to, to continue on with our previous analogy, what you're saying is that, that in this instance, the calculator gives you the wrong answer. Yeah, or it doesn't, it, it doesn't care, and I'm doing scare quotes around care. It doesn't care whether the answer it gives you is right or not. It just gives you the answer it's programmed to give. Yeah, yeah. So why... Let's actually let's take a break, and then we'll. I want to come back with this question about why we should really care about about this. I mean, why this is this whole idea of AI is is an issue. So, uh, if you've listened to the the show before, you know that we ask our guests for for songs to that that means something to them, and and I didn't do that this time. I, I chose a few songs that I think are relevant to our theme, and uh, the first song. Uh, is a song that I, I really like called "Video Killed the Radio Star," by uh, by the Buggles because you know this is the first video played on MTV and and I think most of us in this room well certainly me uh, are of that generation that saw MTV when it first came out and and remember music before MTV and music after MTV and I, I want to think about this idea of AI it, is it and maybe we'll come back with this too, is it this moment of a page turn, right? Is this, a, is this an MTV moment, if you will, or is it just a progression of, it's just the logical evolution of where we have been. So this is Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. Coming through. 
That was Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. Um, You're listening to the Apex Radio here on KCU, Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Evan. So we're having this conversation about, about broader concepts and ideas of AI. And, and I want to ask this question. So in, in history, we often talk, and, and I don't use this term often, but but page turns, right? So for example, the, the America before the Civil War is, is almost unrecognizable to the America after the Civil War and Reconstruction. The America before the New Deal is completely unrecognizable to the, to the America after the New Deal. So is AI a, uh, a page turn, or is it just simply the progression of where we started when we started doing computers? I, I definitely think it is. Um, and I think that revolutions are some of these things that when you're in the middle of them, they don't seem that way. Um, I think that um, the recent revolutions have put a big spotlight on, or the recent innovations, say, in, in AI have put a big spotlight on it. So we're, we're kind of aware we're in this kind of important moment. But I also think we sort of underestimate the importance of this moment as a society sort of at our peril. I think this is kind of a moment of decision. So I, I think that you mentioned about the, the, the ideas of AI, the, the new things that are happening, I guess. And my question is, because I'm not, that's not what I do necessarily. I feel like I'm that frog in the pot, right? That you turn the water on and slowly you find out you're being boiled. So, so what are those new, I mean, what is the leap? Like, like we're, we're talking about it now. What is the leap from where we were to where we are now? Does that make sense? I mean, there's, there's, the, we, we were here, and then all, you talk about, well, now we're doing this. I mean, did people see it coming? I mean, what is the next step here? I mean, it's probably important to point out that AI, machine learning, those types of things have been around for a long, long time, right? Um, decades, and um, I've been using them in my work, and, and Parker's been using them in his for, for many years. Um, what's new is these really accessible um, generative AI tools, right? And that's sort of this AI concept reaching a critical mass, if I can use that term in that way, um, and it being able to be accessed by the general public. Um, and that's, that's a big moment. Um, it's now on everyone's radar. And uh, I don't know of anyone who doesn't have a strong opinion about it, honestly, because it is both beautiful and exciting. And uh, deep down, I think we're all uh, somewhat terrified. So, so it's like like the internet, right? So in the early days, the pocket protector guys at IBM are doing this back and forth. But then once the general public gets it, then you know we just screw it up. Well, I think it's. I, I agree that it is this page turn moment, and sort of speaking just for me as someone who teaches first year composition, it changes everything for me. With like having the general public have access to LLMs like ChatGPT, that means I have to rethink everything about how I teach writing, how I'm going to approach teaching writing in my classes, how I'm going to use writing as an assessment method. That all has to be rethought, you know, because the arrival of LLMs being publicly accessible to my students changes everything. And I think even if I, you know, and I think it changes everything for anyone who teaches writing or uses writing as an assessment method, even if you don't want to bring AI into your classes, you don't want your students to use AI, you still have to change your pedagogy. You still have to change how you approach and think about writing. So to me, in that sort of in my own little microcosm, it's very much a page turn kind of a moment. I think that we're going to see people who have high hopes for what, um, and I'm going to just limit this to kind of two areas, maybe three, the way that um, generative AI can help people create written content, create images, <coughs> and create code. So, so generative AI meaning? So rather than AI that, that is kind of like deep under the hood for doing data analytics and all that other kind of stuff, generative AI is that it's kind of creating something new from the statistical processes that AI generates, right? Like, so it cre can create <coughs> new quote unquote like packets of language or a new image that never existed before. But of course it's basing it on this mosaic of all these bits and pieces and all this other stuff that's been used in the training of an AI, right? So in those areas, people are like, this is gonna be sweet. I don't have to pay a photographer, a graphic designer, an illustrator, a writer, um, or a coder to do that work. 
because what everybody knows is that human beings are really super expensive, right? If we're going to give them jobs, we got to make sure that their benefits packages are there and all these other kinds of things to put somebody to work. And that is seen generally by a lot of organizations as inefficient. And that if we can have tools that will do this with a level of regularity, predictability, and efficiency, it'll be there. But I think that what it's going to create, and Parker and I have talked about this before, it might create like second tier stuff. Like that's not, that's noticeably not really so great. Um, and I think that that's what I want to keep my eyes on for the future. Like this is going to be so awesome. It's going to be able to write all our content. And then people are reading the content right now and going, man, it's not very good. Um, and so the question is, do we make the tool better or does it reveal to us that there's something that human beings can do that these statistical models can't do? This is Stephen King's argument. And part of it is, he says, in the storytelling world, surprise is a big thing. Well, LLMs aren't programmed for surprise, right? They're programmed to be the most statistically likely next word in a sequence. And King says the thing that makes people want to buy my books is I can surprise them. And that might be, it might reveal to us what is the human component of all this work. So then maybe as educators, we can double down on the human component that's necessary to do this work. And the part that isn't human can be handled by the system. I'd love that future. Yeah, but isn't isn't the whole the whole basis of modern media this uh, and, and social media and everything else algorithms about you know we're going to appeal to the broadest audience to the most common denominator, and if that's what AI does, I mean, do people care about quality or do they care about efficiency? Do they care about the ability to get something faster and cheaper or on on TV? I mean, do I do do people care about watching a plot-driven show or just something to have the TV on so they can fall asleep. I mean, it seems to me that Amazon, for example, is built on the model of I'm going to find the most broad things that might interest you based upon your clicks, and I'm going to deliver it to you. And that's what you're talking about AI, right? It's not going to give you the, the, the filet mignon, but it's going to give you the chopped up beef patty. Well, if we go back, let's say we went back 24 months, nobody would have thought that a movie about Barbies would make a billion dollars. And it seems to be like that's like a gut instinct thing um, and not something that an algorithm could predict. And a fascinating book, I think that everybody should read it, is a book called Weapons of Math Destruction by Catherine O'Neill. It's fabulous, and it says, hey, we have some of these mathematical processes, but we have to remember that those mathematical processes were created by human beings, so they inherit the biases that are written into the algorithms. So maybe we overly trust the math. I'm looking over at Brandon, and he's nodding, so it might be in the right territory. One of the places to be cautious about is the fact that we do kind of trust math and science, quote-unquote, STEM stuff, a lot, and we may distrust the humanities a, a lot, um, and there might be a way that by bringing these kind of two disciplines together, we might be able to balance some stuff out. Because uh, O'Neill's book is really frightening because it isn't just averaging stuff out. Algorithms are written with an agenda, she argues. I think there's room for both. You know, the, the, I don't know if racing to the common denominator is the right term to use, but... Um, I think there's room for appealing to the masses and also appealing to all kinds of niches, right? Like, I, I think human creativity is never going away. You know, humans will be able to outperform LLMs or AI in creativity always uh, because what they're trained on is ultimately first came from humans like Todd mentioned a, a little while ago that you know there's this concern with LLMs that they're going to be continuously trained on the next round of training is going to be just trained on more stuff that was generated by AI and it's just going to collapse in on itself um, you know I, I think that the days of mass training models on everything available on the internet are gone. They're over. Those doors have been closed because you see companies like uh, X, formerly Twitter, and Reddit, you know, closing down their APIs so that the companies can't scrape their data anymore to train these LLMs. And so we're not going to have these huge LLMs 
based on all this data out there, L, what the future of LLMs looks like is more targeted toward specific subjects, specific areas, and it's going to lead to a greater diversity in the types of models. So you go to this type of model for this type of thing and that model for that type of thing, and there's just going to be this sort of explosion of access to all these different smaller AIs and that concern about collapses sort of just goes away uh, on on a lot of levels right I think that's a, a really interesting to think thing to think about and there's room for yeah there's room for this LLM that caters to this specific type of data set and there's room for something that's broader in scope so where where's the innovation coming from? Is this led by big, you know, for-profit tech companies or these, you know, the the Steve Jobs in his garage, those kind of things? I mean, where 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 is the innovation here? I'm excited by all the research and work that is happening all over the place. So the explosion of AI research is really, really exciting to me because it's not, we're not just seeing the open AIs and the Googles and the Facebooks and the Microsofts that are really going after research in this area. We're seeing all kinds of smaller players. We're seeing people from universities, you know, academic backgrounds, scientific backgrounds, just the research is exploding and, and arguably yeah, well, Google famously said uh, recently that they have no moat around AI. And what they mean by that is that while they were trying to achieve dominance with their LLM against open AI, all these open source communities have sp just sprung up all over the place to build these other LLMs that are going to outperform them in all kinds of use cases. And so that's what they're scared of. So that, that's what excites me, is that the, the research is really coming all over the place. It's not necessarily coming from the big ones. I, I think we'll, you know, I'm excited to see what comes from the big players out there, but I'm also I'm more excited about what's happening in the open source world. So basically, you know, following up on that, and I'd like each of you to, to answer this if you would, what, I mean, you've obviously given this a lot of thought, this idea about AI and everything else what what is surprising you right now like what surprises you most about ai its capability or what what you didn't think you expected um i think one thing that surprises or excites me um is looking at how people are actually using ai because i think often we kind of get stuck in this false binary of, of it's either bespoke human creativity or it's total AI automation. You have to pick one or the other. And I find it much more interesting to see how people are looking at the messy middle ground there, looking at how you can combine the AI with the human creativity in a way that makes something newer and stranger and kind of unexpected. That's, that's the part of it that really excites me, is looking at how we can collaborate with the AI in really interesting ways. I have a really specific and targeted surprise, and it's maybe dismay. I read a news article that said recently AI-generated web content is being used to sell ads based on the way that, you know, that the algorithmic ads, and nobody, no human is reading anything in any of that transaction, but people are making money off of it. And so when I, th when I think about, like, just the weird way that that's going on that maybe there's a whole economy that might be independent of any human being writing or reading anything and yet they're selling and tracking uh and uh, transacting in money and that starts to feel like crypto or nfts or some of this other stuff where we've had these gold rushes towards something and then within a real it's not just the other end of the hype curve it just falls flat like nfts are worth nothing anymore but for a while everybody thought this was going to be kind of amazing so that was the big surprise i did not know that there was a, a there was a loop in the system where no human being was involved. Yeah. Um, I'll just say that I've been surprised by a couple of things. The first is the types of things that I'm questioning right now, like on a metaphysical level about like the uniqueness of humans, what creativity is, those those types of really deep questions. Um, what's special about the human creative process? 
And the other thing that I've been really surprised by is how quickly my opinion on various applications of AI changes. Um, and I think that it's a really quickly evolving field, um, certainly. Um, and the applications, uh, I, mean, you'll, you, I mean, every day it seems like I find a new um, AI model out there that can do something new and uh, something I thought that only humans can do, right? And so um, its application in society, I think, is something that I am um, surprised by how quickly my opinion um, about it fluctuates, I guess. Huh. And my biggest surprise about AI is how uh, how people are using it. Um, I'm, I'm surprised how some people just turn to it as a Google search or as getting an answer that they would turn to Wikipedia for or something like that. And that's just really not what it's good at. Um, and that surprises me because I, to me, I see a lot of potential and then I see people, I see disappointment in their eyes when they use it. And I'm like, did I, did I get this wrong? But I, I think maybe they're just using it wrong because you can, you can use it in the right way and get some amazing uh, results. But can also use in the wrong way and get crap yeah well let's um let's pause there and take our our second break this is a song from one of my favorite bands some of you may have heard of this band orchestral maneuvers in the dark or omd as they are called and this is a song called robot man so robot man from orchestral maneuvers in the dark Robot man, robot man, robot man Got me running as fast as I can In the head you're the perfect machine There's a hole where your heart should have been That was Robot Man by the 
orchestral maneuvers in the dark uh you're listening to their apex radio hour i'll turn it back to you ryan thanks evan you know the exciting thing here is that uh you know evan being of the younger generation probably hasn't heard much omd at all maybe that should be one of your wedding songs robot man all right, so let's get back to this idea of, you know, Parker, we were talking during the break about intent-based intent computing. Can you talk about that in terms of AI? Yeah, so arguably one of the things that ChatGPT has brought to the masses, so this isn't necessarily a new idea, but I think ChatGPT sort of made this super popular, and it's the idea of... Um, intent-based computing. So it's sort of argued that intent-based computing is the next um, phase of computing. So let me give you a quick history lesson. You know, when computers first started, uh, we would do batch-based computing. So basically people would uh, fill out these punch cards and feed them to a computer in a batch, and then they would come back the next morning and they would get an answer that the computer spit out. Right. And then we moved to this sort of command based interaction with computers where we're typing things into a command line or we're clicking on buttons or we're typing on our keyboard. That's where we've been at for the last 60 plus years is is uh, input based computing. So we're typing or clicking buttons and the computer's giving us an answer. So intent based computing is basically saying telling the computer what you want and the computer gives you an answer or does the thing. So think of ChatGPT, right? You go to ChatGPT and ask it a question and it it sort of understands the intent behind what you're asking and gives you an answer. Um, so it's, it's a super powerful concept because um, you don't have to n exactly know what you want the computer to do. You just need to convey it well enough that the computer understands the intent behind it and th this has been unlocked by two sort of innovations i think one is this idea of a chat-based interface to talk to your computer and get responses and have a conversation that's i think that's an important part of it it's it's not just uh you click a button and it gives you an answer but you ask it a follow-up question and you ask it to clarify and you and you say okay this is how i under this is what i understand what you're saying does this sound right and so you're having this dialogue back and forth and it sort of gets the intent around what you're saying and so the chat interface is part of that the other part of that is it has to do with vector vector embeddings and how these llms work i, I won't go down that rabbit hole but it's all you know basically the technology behind how these LLMs work and and being able to know oh he meant this thing even though he didn't type the exact keyword we know that that other thing is what he meant when he typed that so I guess my that's again goes back to the the user right and, and the intent and in this case somehow the the program is intuiting what is meant is that what you're saying yeah yeah so there, there's a scene in uh i think it was the 2009 star trek movie directed by jj abrams right where um spock as a young kid is as uh depicted on the planet vulcan in this big room where all these kids school-age kids are in these little pods where they're interacting with this ai uh, voice and they're learning so they're the AI is asking them a question and they're responding and it's this dialogue back and forth right um, and the, the AI is helping them learn it's guiding them on their journey it has infinite patience with them it has there are no stupid questions there's no judgment that because the AI is just responding and it's this back and forth dialogue that they're having I, I think that that intent-based computing is what you know gets my um, nerd excitement going well and now with um the paid version of chat gpt um they have it where there's actually the voice where it will where chat gpt will actually voice and talk back to you so it's kind of even becoming more more like that clip from star trek yeah that's right yeah so also like that clip from 2001 right hal the computer that go you know kills everybody that's the more I'm dystopian afraid I can't version do that dave yeah <laughs> yeah so 
I guess the other question that I have about this, I've been thinking about it, and we've talked about this a little bit, is, you know, we, we talked about broad audiences and, and niche audiences, but, I mean, why, I get why myself and, and us as academics and teachers, you know, why why we should care about our students using it and, and, and learning basic skills, and I get why, why Parker and his, his world is, is excited and using it to, to do things, uh, to move move the ball down the field, if you will. But but the average, I mean, the, the, the run-of-the-mill person, why should they even care about regulation, about development, about innovation? You know, what, why? Um, I'll just offer that, like, in general, um, getting people to care about results or consequences of things that are really far down the road is, in general, a really hard thing to do, right? Um, and AI is probably going to be one of those things where there's a lot of short-term gains or short-term conveniences, but it really is. Uh, this, I think we're at a critical moment, and we need to be really intentional. I, I keep saying that, but I, I think it's true. We need to be very wide-eyed about the type of AI interactions we want, what we want AI to do, what we don't want it to do, uh, what we foresee the dangers of it being, and uh, then, then, then pursuing a course of action that's appropriate for that. But, but you're right. I mean, the general public as a rule, um, and human nature as, as a rule is, is you know, I, if it's making my life easier in the moment, then why would I, why would I care? And so that is the challenge, I think, at the end of the day. So uh, one scenario where people would care is uh, the one that I mentioned about taxes, right? If people felt like AI was going to helping people catch them in the loopholes of their tax practices, they, they might go, now, hold on a minute. I want to ask this question. But I have a thought experiment I've been running on myself, which is what if I came in in class first day and said, hey, welcome to whatever class this is. AI will be grading your homework. I think that would be a rubber meets the road thing for a lot of students that are like, I would love the efficiencies AI might give me in doing my own work to turn in. But what if the A, B, C, D, or F, whatever, was handed off by that computer. And I, I mean, I don't think I would ever do it, but I would really like to know what the response would be because I think that would be a place where I'd be like, now hold on a minute. Hold on. And I think that would show the hard edges of some of the boundaries that we're talking about. You would have to just accept that AI's grade. Yeah, I think that, oh, sorry, Parker, go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I think the, the best um, mind model to wrap around AI is to call it a co-pilot. So the human should always be in charge. The human should always be making the decisions at the end of the day. Um, And AI can be a co-pilot in assisting and streamlining, um, making the process more efficient, guiding, doing other tasks while the pilots. I think the metaphor is a really good one. Like, AI is a co-pilot, and if people think of it in that way, um, I think that's a powerful model because that helps us remember we're the ones in control. We're the humans, and we decide. We just use this as a tool and as a help to what we're trying to do. I think that's a, a good analogy in the sense that, you know, Brandon's was talking about also this idea of you build your skills, right? So a, a co-pilot makes the assumption that there is a pilot who has been trained and skilled and has a thought process of how to do the job. So I guess the fundamental idea is that what you're saying, Parker, is that that there is some thought and, and ethical responsibilities that the person using that that tool is. I I just I it it doesn't escape me that we as a species generally are fairly reactive. Right. I mean, Brandon talks about, you know, we need to look ahead. We need to think you know, we're asking people to be proactive. But but does proactivity stifle innovation? Does proactivity, you know, change how we experiment on things? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking in my mind what what movie or TV show exists that that talks about this issue where the machines don't screw everything up. I mean, I guess maybe aliens, right? Because because Bishop saves them. Doesn't he save? He does something. He saves the kid, or he, he only saves her, right? She's getting sucked up the airlock. But 
but I mean, that's my point, right? Is that every time we see these films, it's all about, watch out. I think, too, that a big, I mean, piece of this, just like Parker was saying, um, the human is integral in this loop, right? Um, AIs are built by humans and they're trained on human patterns is really what it is at the end of the day. They're kind of a subset, if you want to think of it that way, of human capability. Um, And so when we're using those tools, I think that um, acknowledging that limitation is also important, but also kind of seeing the, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I don't know. yeah, no, it's a problem. I, I I don't know. Like the regulation thing, walking that fine line between between stifling innovation and then encouraging its growth. There's there's real factors to be considered there, especially on like the geopolitical scale, right? There's whole nation states that are pretty determined to gain like technological supremacy or whatever, and so we need to stay competitive, but at the same time we need to be kind of deliberate about again what like like do we want. Uh, government surveillance do we want um, do we want AI assisted uh, surveillance type activities um, uh, what type of legislation needs to be in place I, I think those things are are issues that should be on the table pretty quick as an undergrad I took a communication technology society class it was a great class but in it we talked about this one idea which is the teacher said if you take a look at all, all of our laws they're just a catalog of our injustices to one another so that goes back to your point, Ryan, that maybe one of the things that we do with legislation is not be proactive, but only to say, oh, something happened and now we can't do it, right? So we drop nuclear bombs uh, and then we decide that we should not drop nuclear bombs, right? So then we it follows with treaties and agreements and regulation and stuff like that because we saw how terrible it was. And maybe that's what's going to have to happen with AI, right? We'll find out, okay, here's the way in which this works well. Here's the way in which we have made some mistakes. And so it'll be rectified or responded to by legislation because people will say, we have hurt people or our culture or our economy um, or ability to compete um, by doing this. But usually people will not sort of willingly enter into any kind of restrictive arrangement. They're just like, give me my freedom. And then once you exceed the bounds of freedom, that's when we tend to reel back and say, nah, you gotta, you got to stop, you know, fill in the blank, uh, poisoning people, um, filling the air with smoke, um, or maybe it's something like uh, having these cars crash into people. You know, we always kind of have to look retroactively. I don't know, it would be cool if we could, if we could anticipate stuff, but people don't want laws just in case something maybe is going to happen. It usually has to be something did happen, so we're going to put a stop to it. Yeah. I think the, the yeah, I mean, that hi- sort of highlights the idea that there are dangers in trying to over-regulate things because you, you, may, you may be stopping things that may never happen, right? How do, how do we know, right, if... I think we've been reactionary because none of us can see the future none of us can tell what's going to be um, a bad outcome so we've out of necessity been reactive but it's all been based off of constitution and we go back to that baseline at the very least right with our our laws and uh, our legislation does it violate our constitution that's sort of one of the bedrocks and then we sort of move from there now oh, it's a complicated messy problem that I have a lot of faith that humanity will work through and sort out. So, Julie, I want to give you the last word here on this segment before we move into our our final segment about what's bringing you joy. What gives you hope? What gives you hope about this whole thing? Uh, What gives me hope? Honestly, I think... The creativity of humans is what gives me hope. The fact that you know humans do are endlessly creative, and I think, you know, they're going to find creative ways of using AI, of interacting with it, of solving issues with AI. And so I think just kind of returning to that humanity and our capacity for creativity and our ability to then work with AI gives me hope. Cool. So this this next song is uh, one that I find creative and gives me hope and makes me smile and reminds me of my good friend Brandon. This is uh, 
She Blinded Me With Science by Thomas Dolby. That was uh, She Blinded Me With Science by Thomas Dolby. You're listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSU, Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thanks, Evan. So this is the last uh, segment of our presentation of our radio show. So we're here uh, talking about joy. And we, if you've listened to the show before, you know we, we asked this question at the end. And I'm gonna. We're gonna go around the room. So, Julie McCown, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? What's bringing me joy? The second season of our flag means death. That's bringing me so much joy. I loved the first season. It's my happy place. I have a picture of Steed and Ed having tea outside my office door. So, the new season's just bringing me so much joy. Thank you. Todd Peterson, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? I've been listening to uh, a pair of uh, Mexican guitar players named Hermanos Gutierrez, and it just feels like 
the super high reverb, really wonderful musical instrumentals, and I grade to it. Super cool. Brandon Wiggins, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Well, I'm a dad of small kids, so I don't get like any time, but the best part of the day is reading picture books to my kids. Anyone in particular? Oh, so many. I guess last night it was Brambley Hedge, I guess. I meant kid, not book. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Parker Grimes, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Oh, gosh, I could have a lot of answers for this, um, but I've been really geeking out on the Planet Money podcast lately. Uh, I'm, for some reason, learning about the economy and how money works and... Uh, the topics that they bring up. I think it's a fantastic podcast, but one episode in particular that stands out to me. They talked about the history of accounting, (laughs) and as boring as that sounds, it was a fascinating topic. It talked about the origins of the spreadsheet and the invention of the computer spreadsheet and how that changed accounting, and uh, the accounting started with in Italy and, oh my gosh, there's just so much there. It's, It's a fun podcast to listen to, and I enjoy the intellectual stimulation. Cool. Evan Miller, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? I have uh, currently been re-watching the Stranger Things series on Netflix. I find that very entertaining, especially during this fall season, so that's what I've been doing. But Ryan Paul, what are you watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? I am rediscovering one of the greatest albums of all time, 1983's Huey Lewis and the News Sports. I mean, it's got, I mean, there's not a bad song on that album. The Heart of Rock and Roll, If This Is It, um, I Want a New Drug. So, Huey Lewis and the News Sports from 1983. I saw them live on that tour. Oh, did you? I'm that old. I saw them live when they were a little older, but uh, but yeah, that's what I was doing. So, with that, I would like to thank our guests, Drs. Julie McCown. Dr. Parker, I'm sorry, Dr. Todd Peterson, Dr. Brandon Wiggins, and the SUU Director of Administrative Systems, Parker Grimes. For Evan Miller, uh, I'm Ryan Paul. Thank you for listening to the Apex Radio Hour, and we'll see you next week. This last song on the way out is one of the coolest songs ever written, Mr. Roboto from Styx.